Hello everyone and welcome to the August 5th edition of the WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with the Floyd Scarron Law Firm. Thanks for joining us. So let's get started with our litigation report. A new Court of Appeal decision decided that a person who is on disability and at the same time claims a wage loss in a discrimination civil lawsuit is not an inconsistent position. Here's what happened in the unpublished case of No Abarca versus Citizens of Humanity, LLC. Citizens designs, markets, and manufactures blue jeans and other apparel under the trademark Citizens of Humanity. No Abarca worked in Citizens Quality Control Department, separating and inspecting boxes of jeans. Abarca started experiencing pain in his chest and clavicle area, which became more intense when lifting on the job until it became unbearable. His supervisor instructed him to see a doctor and referred him to Citizen's Head of Human Resources, who did not advise him to fill out a workers' compensation claim form. So Abarca was not aware that he could file a work comp claim for this injury. Abarca saw a doctor on his own, who said that he could return to work only doing light work. Two business days after the restriction expired, citizens terminated Mr. Abarca. On the day of his termination, he was for the first time instructed to complete a workers' compensation claim form. Abarca then sued citizens for retaliation, disability discrimination, failure to engage in the interactive process, failure to provide reasonable accommodation, failure to prevent or remedy discrimination and retaliation under the Fair Employment and Housing Act, and wrongful termination in violation of public policy. A jury awarded him a total of $760,000, which included $550,000 in punitive damages and the Court of Appeal affirmed this judgment. One of the eight issues raised on appeal by citizens was called judicial estoppel. Citizens contended that judicial estoppel bars Abarca's claims because in his successful application for disability benefits, he represented that he was unable to work. But when he sued citizens for lost wages, contending that he could have worked all along. According to citizens, Abarca cannot reconcile the conflict between the finding that he was temporarily totally disabled for purposes of receiving state disability benefits and his present claim for lost wages. But the Court of Appeal held that an employee should have the opportunity to explain how he can be both entitled to disability and recover lost wages in a discriminatory disability discrimination action. Abarca's explanation at trial was that he could have continued working for citizens had they continued to honor his work restriction. This is critical because disability determinations do not consider whether an employee can perform his job duties with reasonable accommodations. Angel Transportation Incorporated has finally lost its claim for $1.2 million in WCAB liens after protracted litigation. 
a company called Aaron's and its successor company, American Angel Transportation, Inc., contracted with a man named Wayne Walls back in 2012. Angel Transportation agreed to transport individuals claiming workers' comp benefits to and from their medical appointments. Mr. Waltz was responsible for negotiating and securing payments from the workers' compensation insurers or their third-party administrators. Mr. Waltz was to be paid 20% of the actual payments collected for the transportation companies. The companies provided transportation services to applicants based upon requests by Mr. Waltz, typically ranging between 10 to 50 requests per day. The transportation companies filed their lawsuit against Mr. Waltz as well as individual doctors alleging seven causes of action. They alleged that because of his conduct and omissions, over $1.2 million in bill trips went unpaid by insurers and became uncollectible. The problem with the uncollectible liens was that Waltz failed to obtain authorization for the plaintiff's trips ahead of time from the carriers. And he failed to file liens at the WCAB so that Angel's rights to payment for their bill trips could be formally adjudicated by the WCAB in the event an insurer refused to pay. The evidence at trial was insufficient to show causation, however. The trial judge reasoned that many bills were paid without having obtained prior authorization or without filing liens before the WCAB. Thus, there was no direct evidence that failure to obtain prior authorization or failure to file a lien resulted in loss of the payment in every transportation event, since some were paid and some were not. The plaintiffs were provided an opportunity to provide evidence showing a link between the failures and the non-payment on a bill-by-bill -bill basis, and they could not. The trial court entered judgment in favor of Wayne Waltz, which was affirmed by the Court of Appeal in the unpublished case of America Angel Transportation, Inc. versus Wayne Waltz. The Court of Appeal concluded that the plaintiffs have not carried their burden to demonstrate reversible error under a substantial evidence standard of review. And now our crime report. Claims administrators should carefully review SJDB vouchers for possible fraudulent claims, especially if they pertain to Alliance School of Trucking in Chatsworth. 52-year-old Emmett Marshall, the owner and president of the trucking school, pleaded guilty to bilking the Department of Veterans Affairs out of more than $4 million in tuition. He was accused of falsely certifying that veterans had attended classes that they never took. He is scheduled for a sentencing hearing on November 18, where he faces a statutory maximum sentence of 100 years in federal prison. The owner admitted in a plea agreement that he and his co-defendant, 56-year-old Robert Wagoner of Canyon Country, schemed together to defraud the VA. Marshall and Wagoner recruited eligible veterans to take trucking classes paid under the post-9-11 GI Bill. 
The VA paid tuition and fees directly to the school at which the veteran was enrolled. The VA also paid a housing allowance to the veteran enrolled full-time in an approved program. And in some cases, the VA paid a book and supplies benefit directly to the veteran. Mr. Marshall admitted that Wagoner and another individual recruited eligible veterans to enroll by telling the veteran, veterans they could collect housing and other fees from the VA without attending the programs. And they knew that the vast majority of veterans enrolling in the program did not intend to attend any portion of those programs. Marshall and Wagoner created and submitted fraudulent enrollment certifications and also created student files that contained bogus documents. When they became aware of the investigation into their conduct, Marshall, Wagoner, and others removed fraudulent documents from the student files, and Marshall later ordered that these files be destroyed. Wagoner is scheduled to go to trial in this case next February. A healthcare fraud lawsuit has been filed against Life Spine Incorporated. Michael Butler, the founder, president, and chief executive officer of LifeSpine, and Richard Grieber, the vice president of business development of the company. The government seeks damages and civil penalties for paying kickbacks in the form of millions of dollars of consulting fees, royalties, and intellectual property acquisition fees to surgeons to induce them to use life spines, spinal implants, devices, and equipment. The lawsuit alleges that the surgeons who received these payments accounted for about half of LifeSpine's total domestic sales of spinal products from 2012 to 2018. These payments violated the anti-kickback statute, and as a result of this unlawful conduct, LifeSpine, Butler, and Grieber caused hospitals and surgeons to submit false claims for payment to Medicare and Medicaid. LifeSpine develops, manufactures, and markets medical devices, implants, and instruments primarily used in spinal surgeries performed by orthopedic surgeons and neurosurgeons. Live Spine paid surgeons to induce them to use Live Spine products during their surgeries. The company aggressively recruited surgeons who had the potential to use a high volume of Live Spine products to enter into agreements to serve as paid consultants. Live Spine tied these agreements and the associated payments to the surgeons' usage of Live Spine products. LifeSpine and Butler expected surgeons to commit to using LifeSpine products at a certain level in exchange for the consulting fees, royalties, and intellectual property acquisition fees paid to them. LifeSpine entered into an agreement with dozens of surgeons. These agreements included medical education agreements under which the surgeons were paid to provide training and educational services product development agreements under which the surgeons were paid to purportedly provide input on new products and then would receive royalty fees on future sales of the product. 
and intellectual property agreements under which the surgeons were paid large upfront acquisition fees for their patents or patent applications, and then would receive <clears throat> royalties on sales of any products developed based upon the patents. Lifespine paid surgeons millions of dollars in consulting fees, royalties, and intellectual property acquisitions pursuant to these illegal agreements. The government intervened in a private whistleblower lawsuit that had previously been filed under seal pursuant to the False Claims Act. A director for a division at the Cedars-Sinai Hospital has been accused of distributing and possessing child pornography. 59-year-old Guido Germano, Ph.D., has been charged with felony counts of distribution of obscene matter and possession of child or youth pornography. He faces a possible maximum sentence of three years and eight months in state prison if convicted as charged. Germano, who is the director of artificial intelligence medicine at Cedar sinai Hospital, is accused of distributing child pornography videos using peer-to-peer -peer software and downloading them onto his personal computer at his home in Santa Monica. Germano is the scientific director of the Artificial Intelligence in Medicine program and is also a professor of medicine at the University of California, Los Angeles, David Geffen School of Medicine. Germano's research and expertise played an integral role in Cedars-Sinai's nuclear cardiology program. And in regulatory news, the DWC has posted proposed amendments to the copy service fee schedule to its online forum. Members of the public may review and comment on the proposal. The proposed updates to the regulations include a one-time increase of the flat fee rate for copy services from $180 to $210 and an annual cost of living adjustment to the flat fee for copy services. Also, mandatory billing codes will be required, including proposed new codes for sales tax, contracted fees, and additional sets. There will be requirements that bills for both canceled services and certificates of no records include specified information regarding the request for services, including the name of the requester and the date of the request. Claim administrators should also take note of a number of new items of information to be supplied to administrators for review along with the bill for payment. Comments will be accepted on this forum until 5 o'clock p.m. on Friday, August 16. And in medical news, <clears throat> the deadliest time for many surgery patients is not when they're on the operating table. A new study published in the Canadian Medical Association Journal suggests it is while they're recovering in the hospital and after they go home. For this study, the researchers examined outcomes for more than 40,000 patients aged 45 and older who underwent non-cardiac surgery at 28 hospitals in 14 different countries. 
They monitored patients for complications and deaths within 30 days of having their surgery. Overall, only five people, or less than 1% of the patients, actually died on the operating table. And another 500 patients, or 70%, died in the hospital. But another 210 deaths, or 29% of them, did not happen until after the patients were sent home. Nearly half of all the deaths were associated with three complications, major bleeding, heart damage, and bloodstream infections. Many families anxiously wait to hear from the surgeon whether their loved one survived the operation, but the research demonstrates that very few of the deaths occur in the operating room. Researchers say there's a need to focus on post-operative care and transitional care into home settings to improve outcomes. A wide range of technological and medical advances have made surgery safer and less invasive in recent years. But at the same time, patients are also coming to the hospital sicker and being sent home with complex care needs that once would have meant a lengthy hospital stay. Patients who experienced major bleeding after surgery were more than twice as likely to die within 30 days as people who did not have this complication. <clears throat> and patients who developed heart injuries, even though they did not have heart surgery, were also more than twice as likely to die. Patients who got sepsis, a serious bloodstream infection, were more than five times more likely to die within 30 days than people who did not get these infections. Inflammation may be a common denominator in the complications that were most responsible for these deaths. Surgery causes a body-wide inflammatory reaction that can lead to a single or multi-organ failure in the kidneys, heart, lungs, or sepsis, which leads to death. Patients may also not recognize that something is wrong when they're coming off anesthesia or taking narcotic painkillers after surgery. This makes patient after surgeries vulnerable to delays in recognizing complications and hence delays in treatment. And in regulatory news, the California Insurance Commissioner, Ricardo Lara, is under fire for accepting campaign contributions from insurance executives and their spouses. He has yet to release his office calendars in response to public requests. But Mr. Lara acknowledged that he did meet with a CEO his company has multiple complaints against it in cases before his department. Lara said he met with CEO Stephen M. Menzies, who heads Applied Underwriters, a workers' compensation agency that the department formerly settled with for bait and squitch marketing tactics in 2017. Berkshire Hathaway is in the process of selling the company, a sale Lara must himself approve. Lara called his May 6 meeting with Mr. Menzies casual, but he also said he agreed to a meeting after the executive reached out to see if staff could meet with him to review the cases before him. 
Lara, who has been serving as his own campaign treasurer, accepted $46,500 in contributions to his 2022 re-election campaign in April from out-of-state executives with ties to the company. During his campaign for the Post, Lara pledged not to take political money from insurers. The meeting and decisions refreshed concerns from the advocacy nonprofit Consumer Watchdog. They have pressed Lara's office to release calendar records of meetings with executives who donated the money in question. The meetings with Menzies raises questions of potential ex parte communication violations because of Lara's quasi-judicial role as commissioner. Ex parte communications are illegal under California law. But the California Department of Insurance spokesman Michael Soller said that Mr. Lara did not violate ex parte regulations because the conversations was not about a specific case. Lara has not said whether he personally knows the donors who contributed the total and political contributions thought to be associated with applied underwriters. The California Self-Insurers Security Fund Board of Trustees has approved and implemented the 2019-2020 Alternative Security Program. The program frees up about $6.6 billion in working capital and provides California self-insured businesses greater financial flexibility. The Alternative Security Program is a first-in-the-nation program operated by the nonprofit California Self-Insurers Security Fund. The program provides a financial backstop to replace security deposits required to collateralize self-insured workers' compensation liabilities. The participation fee for the guarantee program was reduced 13% as opposed to what it cost last year. These added savings make the program and costs even more competitive for California self-insured businesses. All employers in California are required to have workers' compensation insurance to protect themselves and workers and to minimize the impact of work-related injuries and illnesses. Meeting this requirement can be accomplished either by buying an insurance policy or through obtaining authority from the DIR's Office of Self-Insured Plans to self-insure the business's workers' compensation liabilities. Self-insured employers are required to maintain a deposit to collateralize their risk in an amount equal to the estimated liabilities as determined by an actuary. This deposit, which can be posted in cash, letters of credit, surety bonds, or securities, limits the employer's ability to use their cash or credit line to expand their businesses. In contrast, the security Fund Alternative Security Program allows its members to free up their cash or line of credit. The Alternative Security Program assumes responsibility for their security deposit posting requirements. California currently has more than 3,500 private employers protecting more than 2.3 million workers. 
There's a total payroll of nearly $100 billion through self-insurance workers' compensation plans. One of every eight California workers is protected by a self-insurance plan. Self-insured private employers in California represent large and mid-sized private companies and industry groups. The Workers' Compensation Ethics Advisory Committee is a committee independent of the Division of Workers' Compensation. The committee is composed of nine members, each appointed by the DWC Administrative Director for a term of four years, and they meet four times a year. Anyone may file a complaint with the committee. Complaints may, sub may be submitted anonymously, but they must be in writing. And upon receipt of the complaint, the committee opens a case. Each complaint that alleges misconduct by a judge is formally reviewed by the EAC. To ensure the objectivity of the reviewing members, the names of the complainant, the administrative law judge, witnesses, and the DWC office where the alleged misconduct occurred are redacted from the complaint copies. In 2018, the committee considered and resolved three complaints remaining from 2017, and of the 29 new complaints received in 2018, the committee considered 28 of them and resolved 24. Of the resolved complaints, four resulted in findings of judicial misconduct. In one of the cases, an applicant's attorney complained that despite the fact that the applicant had been represented by competent counsel, the judge became irate when the complainant attempted to walk through a compromise and release because of no panel qualified medical evaluator waiver having been included with the CNR. When the complainant told the judge that the complainant had never before been required to submit such a waiver on a represented case, the judge relied, you're full of, and used an expletive. When the complainant asked the judge not to use expletive, the judge said, if you don't like it, file a complaint. Well, the complaining attorney took the work comp judge up on his suggestion and apparently filed a complaint and the committee identified an ethics violation and recommended to the chief judge that appropriate action be taken. And in another case, an unrepresented applicant complained that while arguing a motion to recuse the work comp judge, the judge replied, you are a GD liar. Based on its review of the investigation, the committee found that it was a single technical violation with no past pattern. Based on that conclusion, the committee recommended no further action by the chief judge. Another complaint from a witness alleged that the judge was clearly angry and spoke to the complainant very aggressively and asked the complainant to wait for the questions to be finished before answering them. The judge alluded to the fact that the complainant had consumed too much caffeine, which the complainant denied. The complainant stated that this is an example of improper demeanor for a judge and willful neglect of proper decorum for a judge. The committee found a single technical violation, but no past patterns. 
The committee acknowledged the challenges presented by a difficult witness, and the committee recommended further appropriate action. And in yet another case, an unrepresented applicant complained that the judge was recused from the expedited hearing because the judge had a former business relationship with the agent for the defense. The complainant said, however, that the judge can see who is on the calendar when it's scheduled and had the responsibility to do something ahead of the hearing without imposing on the complainant to appear for no reason. The complainant argued that this mistake caused unnecessary delays in his case. The committee found a technical violation for the judge failing to put the disclosure on the record and recommended further action. So that is all of our news and our events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. We also publish a daily flash briefing on the Amazon Alexa Echo platform. Search for Workers' Compensation News on Amazon. Again, I'm Renee Foltz with Lloyd Scarron, Manukian Langeman. Thanks for joining us today. And please drop by again next week for more news.